Well, there is one truly defining characteristic of a Christian. And there could be things going through your head right now like, well, maybe it's love. Or, or maybe it's uh, not cussing and, or going to see R-rated movies or trying to be a good, nice person. Uh, some of us might be tempted to think, well, it's going to church on Sunday. I mean, you all get an A for that. Going to church on Sunday, maybe doing, having your personal devotional time. But where do all those little things, and not that there's anything wrong with those things, but where do all those little things come from? All of those little things come from the Holy Spirit that is within us. So I will argue, and I think Paul backs me up, that the one defining characteristic of a Christian is the Holy Spirit inside them. The Holy Spirit lives within, the, the, dwells within every believer, and that's what makes us Christians. That's what makes us a legit Christians, because let's face it, sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we have those moments, those mornings, where we're like, I'm not really feeling this whole Christian thing today. I'm not really sure I want a Christian today. I'm not really sure that I'm doing so good at this. I'm not really sure that God is happy with me. And that's, friends, where we need the doctrine of assurance. And what assures us that we are, in fact, Christians, and God does, in fact, love us, and that we are fully capable of living a life that is pleasing to him is the Holy Spirit living within us. The Holy Spirit is not just some trippy, mystical force. The Holy Spirit actually grows fruit in a believer's life. And the fruit of the Spirit then we see and we look at and we have that as well as our assurance. We've been talking seemingly nonstop about law and sin and the condemnation that comes through the law because of sin. What can be our assurance as Christians that we are not condemned by the law through faith in Jesus Christ? Again, it's the Holy Spirit. So I'll say up front, big idea. The Holy Spirit assures us that we are free from condemnation. The Holy Spirit assures us that we are free from condemnation. And the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is going to give us three reasons why that is true. So if you're not there already, head over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Wow. I got the year wrong on my little promo this morning. I'm in Romans, and I just said Acts. It's going to be a great day, honey. Last week, we finished up Romans chapter 7. We wrapped up three major themes in Paul's thoughts, slavery to sin, the condemnation of the law for every human being, the fight against sin that we feel as every believer feels. Last week, we saw that God's law causes sin to be exposed for what it is. Yet sometimes we still give in to that lie of remaining sin and still sin. And in those moments we remember Jesus won the victory even when we do lose a battle with sin. Ultimately, in Romans 7, we saw we had to have that Paul moment. That moment where we understand the depth of our sin, the conviction of our sin, and come to that point where it's like, who will save me from this body of death? Feeling that desperation because I can't do it myself. And Romans 7 reminded us, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's law shows us the reality of sin so we can find refuge in Christ. And so this week, as you might expect, we turn a major theological corner. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with chapter 8, chapter 8 feels like we just sailed through a hurricane of chapters 5 through 7. And now we are gliding on open waters in a sea of glass and the sun is shining on our faces 
Chapter 8 is massively significant. The great J.I. Packer said it this way. Now, as Romans is the high peak of the Bible, so chapter 8 is the high peak of Romans. And it's critical, though, that we keep the glorious truths of chapter 8 in context with the whole Bible, especially within the context of Romans as it has been flowing, which is one of the greatest blessings of why we preach the way we do, because you guys are all up to speed on that. We know, we've been feeling it, and now that's what makes Romans 8 so much sweeter. Look at Romans 8, just verse 1. There is, therefore, now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I feel like I close the Bible and go home and say amen. Because that is an amazing truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll note a big therefore. And as you all are smart and biblically literate people, you know when we see a therefore, we pump the brakes and we got to figure out what it's there for. Usually it means it's, it's being built on everything that has just happened. Everything that's come before it. And I would say that it's seven chapters worth of Romans that has come before it. This is a huge turning point for the Apostle Paul. The therefore is based on everything that he said previously. On a broad scale, Paul is saying that what comes next is based on what he said for the last seven chapters. Therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has just preached chapters worth of condemnation, right? We all feel it. I see it on your faces. I understand. I feel it too, just unlike Wednesday and Thursday. Then I get to pass it on to you guys. I've been heaping condemnation on you guys for the last couple weeks. Well, I haven't been, but the Holy Spirit hopefully has been. We feel it. We understand. We have the law. We have God's standard. We fall short of the law. Ergo, condemnation. Now Paul drops this and says, therefore, There is no condemnation. It doesn't exist. It's gone. It's that condemnation that Paul has been speaking of. He's speaking of the condemnation, of course, that the law brings for sin. The law, standard of sin, it defines sin. We all know we break it, therefore. But the condemnation's gone. For who? This is for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a very, very important qualifier there. Only for those who are in Christ Jesus. John Calvin writes that after Paul has described this contest of sin versus the spirit within us, he now gives us the consolation of the truth that the law no longer has any condemning power over Christians. Christians are those who are in Christ Jesus. If you need to understand that statement, go back and read chapter 6 and chapter 5 and chapter 4 of Romans and you will see in exquisite detail what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be united to Christ. Huge theological concept that every Christian needs to know. We are united to Christ in his death for sin so that we can be dead to sin. And then we are raised with Christ as he walked out of the tomb in new life. We are raised to Christ to ourselves then walk as new people. Not just people who are trying to be nice. New people. New creatures in God. That's what it means to be in Christ. And that church is is who has no condemnation. Paul will go on to explain why this is, as you may expect, in great detail. So get ready to have some more of Paul's famous four statements coming at you. So verse 2. For, explaining why this is true... 
The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for what God has done, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This is a series of nested explanations, each one using the word for or some other purpose clause in order that, further explaining the claim of what he just said. Why is it true that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Verse 2, for because the law, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And Paul's using law here as a principle. He's saying this is how it works. This is the operative power. This is what's going on. The law is the way things work. The principle in play here. Another way to look at it, of course, is, is the power of what, what, what pushes this truth. This is the way things are. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We remember the law of sin and death. We're very familiar with that. You sin, you die. Right? Sin brings death. That's the law. That's the mathematical equation there. He introduces a new mathematical equation. The spirit brings life. That's the principle here. Verse 3 says, for, what, for God did what the law could not. And again, the law was never designed to bring salvation. The law is the very vehicle through which condemnation comes. So how could the law free us from condemnation when the law is the very vehicle that condemns us? It's impossible that's why the law could not do it. One study, study Bible said it this way, the law was not able to overcome sin. It could point out, it could condemn, it could even stimulate sin, but it could not remove it. So it is impossible for the law to do what God did. Okay, so why is that true? And how did God do that? Very glad you asked. Look at verse three. He says he did this by sending his son Jesus in a very specific way in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. Okay, so remember, we kind of blew by what it said in verse 3, that the law was weakened by the flesh. There's no weakness in the law. But the weakness of the law is that it can't save. Why? Because we're sinful. So every single time, we're going to break the law. We're going to break God's law. I love you all, but we've all broken God's law. Probably when you were three years old. Right? It doesn't take us very long. The first time you raised your tiny little fist in defiance of mom and dad, right? The first time you threw your brother's truck across the room or hit him in the head with something, whatever it is, right? First time you told your lie, whatever it is, we've all broken God's law. That's the weakness of weakened by the flesh there that he's talking about. There's plenty of weakness in us. Weakness is not a character defect. It's not a failing to be our best selves, it is a violation against God. It is sin. It is breaking his law. We could never be found righteous or justified in the sight of God by the law because we're weakened with sin. We've already broken it. We're the ones who then weaken it in the sense that we prove that we could never ever be saved by obeying the law. So therefore, we need salvation from outside of ourselves. That salvation must come through someone perfect like Jesus. It must come from God himself 
like Jesus. And he was sent in a very specific way. Look again at the text. He said that he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh and for, meaning as a sacrifice for sin. This is the unique dual nature of Christ, right? We're in it now, guys. Like we're, we're, we're up to our, our, our waist. We are wading around in serious doctrine here, and I'm just giddy about it, as you can tell. There's, there's two parts of Christ's nature, and they're both very important, right? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So he came as us. He came as a human being in order to represent us and in order to pay our price. But no human being could pay that price because... We're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. So, ergo, he also has to have a divine nature. He has to be God. He has to be both man and God. If neither of those, or neither of those things are true, the whole thing falls apart. He has to be both. That's what, that's what Paul means. He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh as a man for sin. No man could give a sacrifice for sin. Only God could. Jesus is fully man and fully God, and that's how that works. This is none other church than the core of the gospel, the work of Jesus in his incarnation, his perfect sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross in our place, his glorious resurrection proving the sacrifice was accepted, and he truly was the son of God. So why did all that happen? Paul gives us yet another why. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law has a righteous requirement, perfect obedience. That doesn't change. We are still going to be held accountable, every single human being who's ever lived, for obeying God's law. And we have to obey God's law perfectly. God doesn't grade on a curve. Right? The righteous requirement of the law still exists, right? So then how could we possibly obey it perfectly? Great news, we can't. But Jesus did. And so if you place your faith in Jesus, guess what? That righteous requirement that's on you gets transferred to him. And he did it perfectly. The righteous requirement still stands, but that righteousness then, if we have been made new, if we have been declared innocent, if our righteousness has been credited to Christ's account for his perfect obedience, we still have a responsibility. Look at the back half of verse 4. That's hugely important. This is us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit is the one. Remember the principle? The Spirit is the one who gives life. So then we have to walk then according to the Holy Spirit. This is the big why, church. This is the big why, why verses 1 through 4a, he just explained. Why did he do all that for us? So that we would walk according to the Spirit. No condemnation of the law. We are not to live in sin anymore by no means, but rather now we are to live by the Spirit. And here's the first point. The Holy Spirit sets us free to walk in obedience. How's assurance number one? The Holy Spirit assures us, right, that we are Christians because the Holy Spirit sets us free. We've been set free for something. We've been saved for something, and that is to walk in 
obedience. Church, we have not been freed from the condemnation of sin to live however we please. We've not been freed from the condemnation of sin to still live a sinful life. In other words, righteousness comes with responsibility. You're credited with the righteousness of Christ through faith. You've been justified. He now looks at you as completely innocent. Great. Praise God. Amen. You have a job to do. Righteousness comes with responsibility. And we've been freed from condemnation to walk in obedience. Those not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, Paul says. How do we have the assurance that we've been freed from condemnation? Are we walking a spirit-led life? Are we walking in obedience? Father, uh, Church Father John Chrysostom put it this way, to give the crown is his prerogative, but to retain it is our responsibility. For Christ has fulfilled the righteousness of the law on your behalf so that you are not subject to a curse. So now do not betray so great a gift, but keep this great treasure under guard. We're given the crown of righteousness by God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we are secure and we just saying he will hold us fast. But we have a responsibility, church. We have to walk it out. We have to be legit. We have to be authentic. We are no longer to live according to the pattern of sin, but we're to follow the pattern of the Holy Spirit. And so obedience is assurance. We look back on our life and we say, am I actually living a Christian life? Yes, the Holy Spirit is then empowering you to live that life and we are assured of our salvation and we take joy that we are no longer in condemnation. It's one of the main tools God uses to do that is his law. So another way of saying it is, yes, you're saved from condemnation of the law. Great, you're innocent. Now go obey the law. That's how, we, that's how we grow in sanctification. Schreiner says it this way. Verse 4 com- conveys the purpose of Jesus' condemnation to enable believers to fulfill the law. Augustine famously said, law was given that grace might be sought and grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. It's fulfilled in us now. Now we walk it out, but not for our salvation. We do it because we're already saved and we do it out of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, I can see by the looks on your faces, we don't do this perfectly, okay? We, we, God knows that we don't do it perfectly. Calvin said that it's not our, our lives are not like it's just nothing but celestial perfection, but rather we are those who zealously labor to mortify the flesh. In other words, killing sin and growing in, in godliness. Freedom from condemnation isn't freedom from holiness. Freedom from condemnation is freedom for holiness. It's freedom to grow in that. Two things that have to be true in this whole equation. First, the law brings condemnation for every single human being who ever lived. And every single human being, again, is still on the hook to obey God's law. Right? When we stand before God one day, he's going to say, how did you obey my law? And I'm going to say, I didn't. He did. Jesus did. Jesus did perfectly. If you don't have, if you're not in Christ Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you can't say that because you're not in Christ Jesus. And so guess what? It's going to be on you. And everyone has disobeyed the law. But for us as Christians, we come to Christ, we should be screaming this truth from the rooftops. 
that therefore there is now no more condemnation through Christ Jesus our Lord. That should be the banner over our hearts. If you're a Christian, you woke up this morning not under condemnation. You woke up under the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But we also have to say that this joy wells up in worship to our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way to escape condemnation, by faith in who he has provided for us. This, again, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, very, very important uh, affirmed in the New Testament everywhere. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, famously saying this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Watch this. So that, purpose, all the Bible says the same thing, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. That's why Christ became sin for us, so that we could fulfill the law perfectly through his obedience, right? 1 Peter 2.24, it says in your bulletin, 2 Peter 2.24, there is no such thing. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and, watch this, live to righteousness. Church, the Holy Spirit frees us, sets us free so that we can walk in obedience. That's the plan. That's our assurance. Have I, been free? Have I been set free from condemnation? Well, am I walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit? Yes, there's your, con- there, there's your confirmation, right? But second, we also need to realize that this freedom from condemnation, again, is only for Christians. And a Christian is not someone who has a mere intellectual appreciation for these things. For everything that I've been just laying out, if you're sitting there going stroking maybe a beard and saying, yes, I agree with all of this, this is wonderful, That's not a Christian. Paul builds on that. A Christian who is one who is transformed by the gospel. From one who has gone from guilty to righteous. Who knows the responsibility that comes with that righteousness. Who knows that is theirs to live a life consistent with who they are. A couple weeks ago, right, we baptized 10 people in the pool. It was a glorious moment. And before I dunked every single one of them, I asked, are you saying before your church body that you are a Christian? And that it is your desire to live a godly life. And they all said yes. That's the point. The point is, yes, I'm a Christian and it's my desire to live a godly life. And part of me living a godly life is my confirmation that I am a Christian. And that's our assurance that there is no more condemnation. So church, how we live our lives matters. This is the beautiful doctrine here. This doctrine has to inform our daily living. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 5. For, we are swimming in fours today. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. You all knew that another four was coming, right? You also know that from all that, that Paul has been saying That before chapter 8, we knew that he said clearly, there's no middle ground. There's only two camps. Those who live according to the sin and those who live according to the spirit. There's no neutrality. There's no autonomy. Everyone on this glorious and cursed planet is in one of only two buckets. Christians or not Christians. Those in Christ or those still in sin. Slaves to sin or slaves to God. Christianity is so exclusive. You guys are so narrow-minded. I, mm, I don't write it. I'm the mailman. 
This is just what it says. This is the truth. Yes, Christianity is exclusive. Truth by nature is exclusive. If it's true, it's the most glorious truth in the world. And of course, I'm going to say that it's true. What does each one of these look like? Well, we saw it in what Paul said. We see it in one word, mindset. Your outlook, your way of thinking, what you set your minds on. Again, there's only two options. Verse 5 told us that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of flesh. When Paul says flesh, he's not talking flesh, he's talking sin. If you live according to sin, guess what? You set your mind on sin. But if you live according to the Spirit, you're set your, you set your minds according to the Spirit. Our mindset, as commentary, uh, John Murray and his commentator said, is the absorbing object of thought, interest, affection, or purpose. It's what you think about the most. Your absorbing object, whatever you can get absorbed by, of thought, of interest, of affection, and purpose. Now, some of you may be thinking that, okay, well, I'm here, and I'm not sure if I've bought all this yet. I'm not a Christian. Thank you so much for coming. I really, really appreciate that. I respect that greatly. I'm a non-Christian. I'm sitting here listening to you talk about this, but Pastor Mike, I don't wake up every morning going, what God-hating sin can I do today? What, what evil can I inflict upon this planet? It's the hard truth of what Paul is saying is to not live to please God is to live to please yourself. Again, there's no wiggle room there. Either you're living to please God or you're not. And if you're not, you're living to please sin. And really, that boils down to, as Americans, living to please ourselves and not God. And church, we make lousy gods. And that's exactly what we're doing. If we're not living to please God, we've made ourselves God. And we're living to please ourselves as God. And therefore, we are living in the flesh. The first commandment is not to have any other gods in place of the one true God, including ourselves. We remember the greatest commandment, of course, that Jesus summed up the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We all fail at that. And we all fail at that when we please ourselves instead of pleasing God. Is it really that big of a deal? Is it really that big of a deal if I'm not living my life to uh, living my life by the Spirit, not living my life to please God? Yes, so what? I live my life like everybody else for me, right? Is that really a big deal? That's unfortunately a really big deal. Look at verse six. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What does sin bring? We know already. Death. Sin brings shame, usually a whole lot more negative consequences after that. And ultimately, sin is going to bring death and separation from God forever. Verse 7 says, The mind that is set on sin is hostile towards God. Four, because it does not submit to God's law. Why doesn't the mind that's set on the flesh submit to God's law? Paul said it, because it can't. It literally 
cannot. Remember chapter 5, the doctrine of original sin, right? Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and therefore death through sin. Therefore, every single human, we are cursed with sin. Thank you, Adam, right? We are then totally depraved, meaning not that we're as bad as we possibly could be, but that every part of us, our total bodies, in some way, shape, or form, is, is touched by sin. Our minds are damaged by sin, our thoughts are damaged by sin, our desires are damaged. Some way, shape, or form, in totality, we are depraved, we are sinful, we are affected by sin. Along with the doctrine of total depravity is also total inability. We can do nothing to help, to help ourselves out of that. We're spiritually dead. Dead people can't save themselves. They can't do anything. We are total, totally unable to do that. That's what Paul says. We are hostile to God before coming to Christ. We do not submit to God's law because we cannot submit to God's law. Ephesians says that we are under the, the power of the prince of the air, like everybody else. Until God comes and opens our eyes, we cannot submit to him. Verse 8 nails that cold. It says those in the flesh, in other words, non-Christians, cannot please God. It is impossible until we are made new. We cannot do anything that pleases God because we are totally sinful and we're totally unable to do so ourselves. But for those who are Christians, those who have set our minds on the spirit because we've been transformed and reborn as new creations in Christ, the end of that is not shame, negative consequences, and death. Watch this in verse 6. What do we get from setting our minds on the Spirit? Set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Two different camps. Those in the flesh and those in the Spirit. Two different consequences that inevitably come from those two different camps. One is death, one is life and peace. Which would you choose? (laughs) The Holy Spirit, here's point two. The Holy Spirit is life and peace to those who focus their lives on him. The Holy Spirit is life and peace. So the obvious application question here that we all knew was coming is what is your mindset? What are you focusing your thoughts on? What are you basing your life on? When you wake up every day, what is your mission? Do you even have one? If it's not to please God and walking by the Spirit, then you're walking by the flesh. And if you're not living to please God, then you're living to please yourself, and that is also walking by the flesh. And do you actually have that life and that peace that comes from following the Spirit. If you do, remember, that's another assurance of how you have been free, freed from condemnation. When we have that life, that peace, because we are walking in obedience, that is another assurance through the Spirit that we have been set free from condemnation. What do you think about the most? What thoughts consume your mind? What thoughts keep returning to your mind? What do you think about when your mind goes into neutral? What do you think about in those first couple minutes when you wake up in the morning and you're trying to figure out if you're going to get out of bed or not? Being sinfully minded brings death, but being spiritually minded brings life and peace. We can see this, the ultimate end of a mind that is set on the flesh is the tragedy of addiction. 
If someone's addicted to heroin or alcohol or prescription meds, what is their one prevailing mindset? Get it. At any cost, get it. Right? It's a little microcosm of the end. It's a case study of, the, of what sin actually does. It takes over everything eventually. That's why Paul says there's just two camps. Even Christians, how we think is so important. We can so easily slip into the mindset of not pleasing God but living to please ourselves because it's all around us. It's in the air that we breathe. Is live to please ourselves. If only I can tweak my life to give myself a little bit more comfort or fun, a little bit more pleasure, a little more money, that's my mindset. Then I'll have the life that I want. Then I'll have peace. No, you won't. Because those things cannot bring peace. Paul just told us what will bring life and peace. Set your mind on the spirit. Not how you can tweak your life out to think that the way it'll be best for you. Our mindset, rather, from this passage needs to be set on the things of the spirit. And then we will have life and peace. And Paul talks about this in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3. Battling sticky pages here. Summer at Highlands. Colossians chapter 3. Look at this. If then you have been raised with Christ, set the things that are above, set, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul says, hey, here's your mindset. Here's what you do. Think about things that are above. Think about spiritual things, right? Because that's who you are. Your life is hidden with God. Paul goes on to say how we do that. What does that look like? And the answer is not going to shock you. Still in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, listen to how we do this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, <clears throat> impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. This is how you do this. This is how you set your mind on the spirit. Put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, free, but Christ is all in all. Paul says, here, church, Set your mind on the things that are above. Set your mind on things of spirit. How do you do that? Kill sin. How do you do that? Mortify sin. How do you do that? Grow in holiness. How do you do that? Progressive sanctification. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's how we set our minds on the things of the spirit, church. It seems like we've come back to this every single week, right? Progressive sanctification. That's the answer. Kill sin in your life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, grow to look more like Jesus Christ. That's how you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. But what about the other side of the equation? What about those who are not Christians? Meaning then everyone who is walking according to the flesh. Well, as our text points 
out, it is a very sobering reality. Those who are not in Christ are hostile to God and cannot please God. This is a colossal implication for the way that we look at other people. They aren't basically good people. They aren't spiritual people who have good hearts. If you're here today again and you're not a Christian, thank you for coming. I hope and I pray that you will see the reality of what this is. And I love you enough to tell you the truth of what Paul's saying here. This is what it is. No one's basically good, right? And if you're not in Christ, it says you are hostile to God. Sometimes we think like we can sugarcoat this and, and soften it up and say, um, well, they're good people. Well, they are, but they are also hostile to God and an, an enemy of God. That's what non-Christians mean. If you're not in Christ, you are his enemy. Not many people think this way. This, again, has much to do with the giant worldview question, are people basically good or basically evil? Biblical answer, basically evil. Romans backs that up here again. If you're not in Christ, you're still in your original nature, hostile to God. So church, how does this impact our evangelism? How does this impact our apologetics? Romans 8, 7 through 8 has a huge impact on both of those things. So much of our evangelism, we can drift squishy. And there's no squishiness here. People need to know the truth. And you know what? That's what makes the good news so good. We have to tell them the bad news first in order for the good news to be seen for the goodness of what it is. That also leads us to the glorious truth of how God works through the gospel. He is the one who's sovereign over salvation. He knows who are his, and he actively works to draw them to himself. Jesus tells us in John 6, that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. We need to be praying then, therefore, in our evangelism, guess what, that God draws people to himself. Does that not take the pressure off of us? We're not going to save anybody, church. We're just going to speak the spiritual truth that Paul lays out here in this. God is the one who draws people to him. And so that's how we need to be praying. God opens eyes to their true spiritual condition, right? How can you go from being hostile to God, living a life that you cannot please him, without him doing that for you? You can't. So when we think about evangelism, we need to think in these terms. We can also serve unbelievers well by doing what they cannot. And here's where it gets really practical, praying for them. I love it when unbelievers come and ask me to pray for them. Because to be perfectly honest, according to this passage, they can't pray for themselves. They can't. God will always hear a sinner who cries out to God and says, save me, I'm a sinner, just like Paul. He will always hear that cry. But God is not working for unbelievers in the way that he is working for his children. So when an unbeliever prays, God help me, God do this, God do, it's going nowhere. It really is. Because why? They're hostile to God. They're an enemy of God. So here comes us. I'll pray for you. I'm one of his children. I would love to pray for you. Of course I'll pray for you. How much more impact does that have? We realize that we actually can go to the Father and pray for people who can't pray for themselves. And of course, we pray for all things, all kinds of requests. 
but we also pray for their salvation. We also pray for God to draw them to himself, right? We need to realize that. This is, this is the hard truth that's buried in this encouraging passage about what it really means to be an unbeliever. One more really important thing that we can do in our evangelism and our apologetics with, with unbelieving friends and family, be legit. Be the kind of Christian that Paul points out here. Don't live our lives according to the flesh. Live our lives according to the spirit. What a confusing message that sends to the world. If we are living, I'm a Christian, but yet I'm living my life according to the flesh? No way. That's going to confuse the heck out of a non-believer. I'm a Christian, and therefore I live my life. My mindset, what I think about, is according to the spirit. And that's where Paul goes next to land the plane. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul now speaks directly to us, the church, and he challenges them and us. He is reassuring them, and the central point of reassurance is what? The Holy Spirit. He starts his assurance from a critical aspect of the faith, our identity. Look at verse 9. You, however, you guys, Christians, highlands, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, which is why I said in the introduction the, the key characteristic of a Christian is one who has the Holy Spirit, right? Paul just told us, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not in him. That's our identity, right? That's the proof of who we are, what camp we're in, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. That's why he contrasts it with the opposite. Those who don't have the Spirit don't belong to Christ. They're not Christians. But look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, guess what? Though there will always be remaining sin in your heart, right? Though you be waging war with the power of the Spirit, that part of us that's sinful, that remaining sin, will still continue to bring death in some way to our bodies, right? Sin's going to always do that. But guess what? The Spirit within us is more powerful than that remaining sin. And the Spirit then brings life. The Spirit then is life in us. It gets better. He says, one day the war with sin will actually cease. Even though we may physically die, again, as a result of the cheer up, right? Everybody dies. Even though we will then one day die, guess what? He says something very, very important to close this out. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We will be resurrected. We will live forever with Christ. That's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give life to us. So not only then do we have victory over sin because the spirit is in us and the spirit is life right now, we have spiritual life because of the Holy Spirit. Guess what? One day we're going to have eternal life because of that same power of the Spirit. We will be raised to new life through that same Spirit. And once again, our assurance then is the Holy Spirit. 
the key and central aspect, the ground of our identity, the Holy Spirit living inside us. We are Christians, and the proof of that is none other than the Holy Spirit. And so I'll say the third point this way. The Holy Spirit empowers our spiritual life now and our eternal life in the future. The presence of the Spirit, again, the distinguishing mark of the Christian. Good news, Highlands. Be assured. The Holy Spirit lives within you. A life lived focus on the Spirit can only be empowered by that same Spirit. And if you're wondering how powerful that Holy Spirit is, he tells us, right? He says that same Spirit that gave life to Christ. The, whole, the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives inside you. How will that change your Tuesday? We have that same spirit that lives in us. Can we get through the day? Yes. Can we kill sin? Absolutely. Can we live a life of victory and joy and fulfillment? Yes. Why? The Holy Spirit is in us. The same Holy Spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead. On Wednesday nights with the men upstairs in the law office, shameless plug, men, we just finished Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit falling at Pentecost on the church and the fulfillment of the prophets. It was necessary. Jesus gave the church the mission. He says, stay here until you get the Holy Spirit, and then once you do, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and throughout the whole world, right? Jesus' point is well taken here. They couldn't do it without the Holy Spirit. They needed the Holy Spirit. We can't do it without the Holy Spirit. It's critical. And that Holy Spirit that lives within us is the same Spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead. Be encouraged at that church. And we can live a joyful, victorious life. Neither, of course, can we live a life of obedience without the Holy Spirit. And that was part of the prophecy of the Holy Spirit. Back in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 26, listen to this. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, watch this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is Ezekiel writing hundreds of years before the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost saying, guess what, it's coming and you won't be able to obey me without it. But it's coming, good news, you will be able to obey me. That's the prophecy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Christians, it is impossible to walk according to the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. But good news, you have the Holy Spirit. So it is possible. And so church, be encouraged. Those battles that we fight with sin, that we lose, get back up. We have the Holy Spirit. Through His power, you can live a life that is pleasing to God. And church, be encouraged. One day, this fight will be gone forever. One day, remember that wonderful drawing that I put on screen last week, right? One day, we will only have the Spirit. Sin will be gone. The battle will be done forever. And that's the same Spirit that empowers our spiritual life now will empower our eternal life in the future. Romans 8 is all about assurance. And this chunk, the first 11 verses, is chock full of assurances, church, that we are no longer condemned. We are no longer under the condemnation of the law. And what's the assurance of that? The Holy Spirit. So once again, the Holy Spirit assures us that we are free from condemnation. How do we know that we're free from it? Well, the Holy Spirit gives us 
the freedom from that to walk in obedience. Are you walking in obedience? If you are, look back on that track record and say, hmm, I can see evidence of the Holy Spirit inside me. I am no longer under condemnation because Christ has set me free from that. And there's proof. Look at that proof. Here's a, here's a good one. With your, your brothers and sisters, with your spouses, with your, your family, right? Point out those evidences of grace. Say, I saw this in you. I saw Christ in you just there. When you were tempted to lose it with the kids, you didn't. I saw patience. I saw fruit. I saw the Holy Spirit. I saw the way that that, was person, that person was talking to you and you didn't take the bait. You answered with kindness and gentleness. I saw the Holy Spirit in you. Evidences that we are no longer condemned. We aren't freed from the condemnation of sin to live however we want to. We obey God's law because we are freed from condemnation. And that's our assurance. And that obedience, church, is worth it. Many of us can give powerful testimony to the truth of a life lived in obedience to the Spirit is way better than a life lived in obedience to sin. I'll give you big personal testimony of that. This is much better. And we remember that. And what's the reward for it? Further assurance that we've been freed from condemnation. We see that life and that peace taking root in our lives. Our hearts should be little, little gardens of peace and life. Everything that we, we go to in work, in our travels, in our families, it should be growing life and peace all around us because the Holy Spirit is there. I know it's not going to be perfect all the time. But when we see it, we are assured that we have been freed from condemnation. And we are reminded in this passage how powerful the Holy Spirit is that dwells within us. The Holy Spirit literally resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. He will empower you to live a life that's pleasing to him. The Spirit empowers our spiritual lives now and one day will resurrect us to new life with Christ forever. Church, we look at our lives and we see these things and we can be assured that yes, we have been freed. Because we can read this. We can read this truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can close our Bibles and we can say, oh, that's a nice truth. I like that very much. And we do. And yes and Amen. But how do we know? We see it in the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And therefore, we can say with joy and confidence, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your love. We thank you for this passage, Lord. So much to go through, so much truth in here, but yet so much encouragement. Lord, for us as believers, would you cause us to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you cause us, Lord, to look at our lives and see that fruit and be encouraged? Lord, point out those areas where we need to grow, where we need to be more obedient to you. Lord, fill us with joy as we see the evidence of our, our, our verdict of being innocent before you through faith in Jesus Christ. But Lord, for those who still need to come to you, would you draw them to yourself? Would you open their eyes to see this is my actual spiritual condition? The curtain's been pulled back. I am actually hostile to God. I'm living a life that is uh, as an enemy of God. I'm living my life according to me and my sin. But Lord, please show them what can be in Christ Jesus. Open their eyes to what can be the transforming power of the gospel to bring them from death to life all by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.